We begin a new series today that will probably be a six or seven week series that'll take us up a couple of weeks uh, prior to Easter, which is in late March this year. You guys know how Easter is determined on the calendar. You need to Google that, not now, because I want you to listen to this sermon, but it's very fascinating, very complex. It's not a soundbite um, answer there. But uh, we're going to begin this series today on Nehemiah, and the subtitle to the series is Rebuilding a Life. And I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you need something rebuilt? Is there something in your world, if not your entire world, that's just kind of in ashes, that maybe has been knocked down, that's broken? There's hurt and pain and just something there, and you're left looking and saying, hey, can this, can it be rebuilt? How, how's it going to be rebuilt? I want to say that this series, um, I hope and pray, speaks into you, into that. And some of life, if, you, if you've got your hands folded, you're like, man, all, things are all good for me today, preacher. I'm just hitting on all cylinders. I'm in my wheelhouse, man. Everything's fine. Listen, listen, and this will be preventative today. Because a lot of wisdom, sage wisdom, is preventative. You're going to need it later. But there's this uh, beautiful um, question that I want to put before you today. A, a question that I want you to hear it and consider it. Here's the question. You got a problem. Now, depending on the tone, the voice inflection of that, uh, that question could be, it could be considered a couple of different ways. Like, you, you got a problem? I mean, that's a question that started a few fights and fracases, right? A meltdown, a melee, right? A tussle, a tiff. I mean, people have, people have actually come to blows if you ask that question that way. You got a problem? But here's how I mean the question. Do you, do you have a problem? Do you have something big, a, a concern, something that God is stirring up in you that you ought to consider, that you ought to tackle? There's really not a problem-free life, is there? Not a one of us would even try to be so defiant, so rebellious as to say, I don't have any problems. In fact, there's a word, there's a term for the problem-free life. You know what the word is? Dead. <laughs> to live, to live is to face and solve problems. Growth doesn't occur by avoiding problems. Growth, in fact, occurs by facing, solving larger and more interesting problems. And I want to say to you this morning as we begin the sermon in this series that God wants to give you a problem. In fact, there's, there's a pattern in the Bible where God does that. But let me back up and hint to you what I mean or tell you what I mean without any more hints or clues. What I'm saying here is God wants to give you a problem that's worth solving, a problem that's worth going after. God wants to give you a big, buoyant vision for your life that's worth your best energies. He made you that way. When I'm dying one day and all efforts to resuscitate me have failed, I, don't, I want people to say more about me than just he made his car payments. There's something in me and in you that God calls forth to say live for something, live for something big. I wanna, I wanna tell you, if you don't know a pattern that's in the Bible, God gives people, he puts in front of them a problem to face. For Moses, he couldn't stand that the Israelite people were enslaved and in oppression to the Egyptians. 
For David, he couldn't stand that there was a giant named Goliath who was taunting the people. For Esther, she couldn't stand the fact that the people were being threatened and potentially victimized by a genocidal maniac. For Paul, he couldn't stand the fact, couldn't sleep at times because the Gentiles had not heard the gospel. And for this man we're going to look at today and over the next several weeks, Nehemiah couldn't stand the fact that the wall had fallen in a place that he loved called Jerusalem. God wants to give you a problem. In fact, let's put it this way. You can't really follow Jesus without tackling a problem. To follow Jesus is to be energized by something big and buoyant and larger than you that, that summons your best, that, that, that's worthy of your energies and your full heart's devotion. When Jesus came, he stood up in his first sermon. It's recorded for us in Luke chapter 4. It was at a Jewish synagogue, and he stood up, and he quoted from the prophet Isaiah. And he said, I am coming what? I'm coming what to do what? I'm coming so that the blind can see, so those in prison can be free, that those who are in oppression would find liberation. There would be recovery to those who are hurting. I've come for that very reason. In Zephaniah chapter 7, which why should I even quote it? Because most of y'all have that memorized. But in that passage, it says that we are to go after true justice, to show mercy and compassion for all, and that we are not to oppress the poor, the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. There are problems in our world. There are plenty of broken walls. What's your problem? We moved into this beautiful building, this sanctuary built in 1948. Who was born in 1948? Just let me see a show of hands. Wow. God bless you. Yeah, two people, okay? I'm telling you, our church is too young. It's too young. We're not going to make it. We're just too young. Not enough wisdom in here. This place was built in 1948, and Woodland Hills has a rich history for which we are grateful. And we were able to move in here on March the 30th. We had our first worship service on March 30th, 2014. On March 27th, on a Thursday night, we gathered uh, some of our staff, our elders, our group leaders, and we had dinner where we used to be at Dueling Hall. We kind of brought in our own dinner, and we came over here and we prayed. And we had scripture verses around the room. We prayed all around this sanctuary, the pre-renovated sanctuary. And back there in that corner, my left and your right in the back, there was Isaiah 58 on the floor written. And we prayed in stations. Isaiah 58 says this. We prayed this passage to be true for our church into our future. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do, not, if you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and the malicious talk. By the way, that's what religious people tend to do. The pointing finger and the malicious talk. How many of you are just tired of that in church? How many of you want that just completely banished? That's just detestable to God, the pointing finger and the malicious talk. He's called us to something higher. And if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will, listen, rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer 
of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. It is in the heart of God for you and I to face problems, to face things that are broken, and to join him on the journey. Y'all, we got to join him. Human ingenuity and creativity and man's methods are not enough. They all fall short. And we are called to be the church, to be done with finger pointing and malicious talk and to walk in and to be a well-watered garden together, to enjoy this abundant sunshine of God's blessing and favor as we walk and we become repairers, restorers, and rebuilders. That's what we're looking at these weeks. This man named Nehemiah. I want to give you a little bit of background on Nehemiah, what was happening historically as we in just a moment look at Nehemiah chapter 1, just, a, first, just a, a few verses. And if somebody has the black ESV study Bible, they'll call out a page number where that is. You'll get extra points today. And I'll, you shout it out to me in a moment, and I'll shout it out to the rest of the congregation. But the verse will be up in a moment. But let me give you some background. Uh, Israel, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be in Genesis or Exodus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go fast forward here. Uh, God's people, the Israelites, had been through an awful lot. They had known God's favor, and they had walked away from that. They had known barren desert, desert wilderness experiences. And they were, because of their disobedience, because of pillaging and plum, plundering, they had been divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom uh, was called Judah, and the southern kingdom was known as Israel. The northern kingdom didn't fare very well, kind of like in college football. The north doesn't do quite as well as the southern states. And the northern kingdom had known wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. And in 722 B.C., the Assyrians laid siege on them. And it wasn't it wasn't an easy raid. It was tough, and people lost their lives, and folks, the Israelites were deported and exported from, away from the northern kingdom. And the southern kingdom, uh, just something about those southern states, they fared better. Um, they, they were, I guess you could say it was an alternating type of kingdom. They had a one, in one season, they had a good godly king, and then they had a wicked king. And then they'd have a good king, and then they'd have a wicked king. So they were able to hang on a little bit longer. And by the, about 136 years later, a group of folks, invaders, outside invaders, laid siege on them. It wasn't the Assyrians, it was the Babylonians. And they were treated badly. They were enslaved, and they were scattered throughout the ancient world. And then one day, the Persians show up, and they say, we're in charge. Now, we run the world. The Persians had conquered the Assyrians who had conquered the Babylonians. And it's in this context that we learn about a man named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah knew the word of the Lord. And Nehemiah was a man of integrity. All indications suggest that he was a very trustworthy person because he was a cupbearer. He was a cupbearer to the king. We'll talk about that in just a second. But let's read the word of God together. Nehemiah chapter 1. We'll read verses 1, 2, and 3, and then consider verse 4. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month. Did anybody get a page number in the ESV? Too late for that. We'll do that next week. Now it happened in the month of 
Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile. Do you see the growing awareness and growing concern? And concerning Jerusalem, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. We see in Nehemiah, in this passage, walls being broken. Now you may think, big deal. What's the big deal about walls being broken down? This is ancient literature, right? How does that relate to us? Because we don't really understand it. But walls, broken walls, uh, at that time were a big deal. There's a proverb. It's Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 28. And it says, um, a man without self-control is like a city without walls. A city without walls or a city whose walls are broken down is a man without self-control. Do you see the value of the city wall this week? Uh, more news on a, a famous football player that's been beleaguered and in trouble. Johnny Manziel's father came out this week and said, I don't even know if my son's going to make it to 24 years old. What does he mean by that? If you follow sports or TMZ, you'll know that his dad is begging for his son to have uh, not money and wealth and popularity. He's got that. But to have self-control to be able to control anger and ego and alcohol. Because a man without self-control, any person, is like a city without walls. You're weak and you're vulnerable to all kind of forces and you probably aren't gonna last long if you don't have impulse control. Any counselors in the room? You know, you know where I'm coming from, right? Impulse control is what separates people. Being able to be good and faithful over the long haul. But so it is. In that day, back in the day, a city walls uh, meant a safety for its, its residents. If you had a city wall that was, that was up, that was good, and an army or police state, you were, you were in good shape. A, a city wall meant that uh, you could work and have commerce and prosperity. It meant that families could uh, love one another, that children could play safely outside, that there could be education and there could be art and there could be worship. But if a city wall was broken down, it meant violence. It meant being influenced by outside forces. It meant a lack of dignity and it meant death. Several months ago, in a different context I, from here, shared with you a book I just read. I recommended it to you, a, a book called The Locust Effect, a book written about justice in our world today, a book about the international justice ministry. And in this book, it's, so, uh, it's intellectual, but it's so fascinating to look at our world and the problem of violence and people living around the world who don't have protection. They don't have a city wall, in effect. They don't have a police state. You can visit the website in southern Sudan and see that the police are not active and on their post. They're not protecting and securing their people. And people live that way. In 2013, when our church was next door at Dueling Hall, we had about 10 or 12 people set to go to Haiti. Flights were booked and our team was ready to go and to make an impact there. And that trip was canceled. Why? It wasn't safe. That area had lacked protection. To be a people 
to be a place where beauty and art and education and family and children can flourish, where dignity is upheld and commerce and work and wealth and prosperity is able to flourish, there has to be protection. We don't get this idea of walls. Years ago when we lived out west, we had access to a vacation home. And I needed that because I was in the ministry. We don't make a lot of money. Ministers, most ministers I know don't have extra homes, okay? But we had access to a home in a gated community. And it was very common at that time that we would get a phone call. And it was, they would say, uh, Mr. Mamarian, which I'm like, I'm not Mr. Mamarian. I'm just mooching off of him. Uh, Mr. Green, he would say, oh, well, Mr. Green, your garage is left open. Your garage door is open. That police security actually checking on us. That's how a lot of us live, right? That's the nation in which we live. And I know there's racial strife and tension. I know there's real problems. And I don't want to sound like Mr. Whitey up here, okay? But I'm just saying there's a lot to be thankful for in the state that we live. And if you're out in the suburbs and you're in a gated community, you know that we take a lot for granted. But back then, walls meant a lot. This week, I went by myself. I'm an extrovert, but I went to a movie by myself hoping that none of you would see me and laugh at me. And I went to see 13 Hours, the Benghazi movie. I won't give anything away because some of you still haven't seen it, but there was this particular scene. Again, I'm going to try not to give anything away. There's this particular scene, and they, our, our guys, with their sophisticated weaponry and their, high, their amazing skill, the best in the world, and they were, they were guarding this palace. They, had, they were behind a wall in this palatial estate, and enemy were coming up and they had to discern, they had to decide, are they the good guys or the bad guys? But they couldn't shoot unless they saw a gun, unless they were being shot at. One scene has a few guys in a car, uh, teenagers driving a car and they have a cell phone. They're like, one guy's got his aim on him. He's ready to take them out. What are they doing? Who are they? And one of the young men puts a cell phone out like that. He's getting the satellite coordinates to where they are so he can drive back. And later you learn that's where they fire missiles from. In a modern world, I guess walls aren't the be-all, end-all, are they? But go back to Nehemiah. Go back to the Persian Empire. Walls were everything. And the walls, Nehemiah notices, were down. Nehemiah is a cupbearer as we walk through, as we walk through this book and the ensuing chapters, we'll see other roles that he played. But for now, he's a cupbearer. He's a very trustworthy person, as I said, a man of high integrity. What, what's a cupbearer? Do you guys understand this historically? A cupbearer is a cupbearer to the king. A king rules. We all get that. But what does a, a cupbearer do? It's more than a, a maid or a waiter or a butler. In fact, it's a it's a prestigious position. Uh, to some extent, it's dangerous. It was Common. I don't know if I should say common, but it happened back then. Uh, predating the king Artaxerxes, predating Nehemiah in this period, uh, there were kings that were assassinated, not by snipers from a distance, but what? Food poisoning. Putting something in the soup or the drink, the wine. And so a cupbearer was there. A cupbearer had a prestigious position. A, a cupbearer was a trusted person of high integrity, a close confidant of the king. This man would be next to that man, and they shared life together. It's likely that, that Nehemiah had a condo in the king's palace. He's right there, which is interesting to me. Don't miss this. It's interesting to me that this man, Nehemiah, could be far away from his homeland displaced, but because of his integrity, because of his access, because he was appointed by a divine God, he was there in the lap of luxury. Yet, 
God breaks his heart. Now, we can talk about this later. You can go to lunch and talk about it. You can email me this week. But is it possible with all the luxuries and amenities and comforts that we have, you and I, is there even room, margin for God to break our hearts? When we're so sheltered and things are so good, but for Nehemiah, what a lesson to know that God can penetrate anywhere, that his spirit can do a work and call us out. And Nehemiah learned because he knew the word of the Lord. He heard about the temple. Historically, he knew that, that the, the walls had fallen and he got concerned about his people. He was hundreds of miles away. But he's burdened by his people. The walls are in ruin. The gate has, has been on fire there's death to his people. There's the loss of dignity because as the locust effect uh, shares this book about international justice mission and the problems of violence in the world, when people are not protected, people die. And those who don't die really lack dignity. Just the lack of security and the unrest and what can happen next to not live in a police state is a horrible thing for police protection, rather. In Nehemiah, Nehemiah remembers the word of the Lord. He knew the word of the Lord. If you're going to be a spiritual leader, you need to know the word of God. And that's one of the reasons Nehemiah has become a hero of mine. He knew the word of the Lord, and he knew it with precision. And he knew that God had said that he was going to rebuild the temple. But wait, y'all, it had been 150 years. And for him, he was alive much of that, and he began to realize that it looked like God's sovereign plan was going to be thwarted. And we see this characteristic that I want to give you this morning. In fact, it's really what I want you to leave with. But Nehemiah was a man who had a broken heart. God broke his heart. We're going to talk later about his bravery. We're going to talk about the courageous spirit that he had. We're going to talk about his commitment to prayer. We're going to talk about how he had a strategic plan. He was an organized dude. And how... Uh, he differentiated himself because his concern moved toward action. And that's where a lot of us, where we separate ourselves. But Nehemiah, his heart was broken. Verse 4 of chapter 1. Do we have it? It says there, we can get it I guess in a moment. But it says in Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 4 that he wept and mourned and he fasted and prayed before the Lord. I've said it to some of you before, man. I don't freak out when a man cries. There are times I freak out when a man doesn't cry. There's, I don't want to pick on her, but I hope she doesn't get on to me. But there's a, there's a, a woman over here uh, named Hope. She's in our small group. She's the woman, do some of you notice in worship, that's wearing the Denver Broncos jersey and get up. Um, She's in our group, and on Wednesday night, I asked her, I said, you know, is, do you think, talking about the Super Bowl tonight, do you think Peyton Manning is going to cry? To which Hope said, shut up, and she lunged at me. <laughs> but how many of you think somebody's going to cry tonight after the Super Bowl, right? Somebody's crying. There's going to be a dejected locker room, and it's going to be painful, and they're going to pan in there, and they're going to get interviews. And by the way, a coach or a player that comes out, that stands in front of the microphones, that takes questions from the how hard is that? Like, show that guy, even if it's your rival, show that guy some love, right? And there, there's tears of joy. And I don't know, I just got a feeling that this is Peyton Manning's uh, last game. By the way, he went to school at Tennessee. Okay, Tennessee, not Ole Miss. But um, 
I just got this feeling there could be some emotion tonight because of how prolific his career has been and what's at stake and uh, what's changing or could likely be changing. But there's going to be some crying tonight. And with Nehemiah, there it is. As soon as I heard these words, see, it's in response to, I heard these words, I learned what's up. And what? I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This isn't introspection. It's not negativity. It's not woe is me, grab the Kleenex. He says what? Before the God of heaven. And and what he's saying, he's getting the sense that this is leading to something. This emotion, this, this tears, this mourning, praying, fasting, weeping, it's leading to something. God is raising something up in me. Now, we cry a lot. I, last night, I hit a search engine up and realized how many songs are about crying. Crying in the rain, blue eyes crying in the rain, cry me a river, the dolphins made me cry, don't cry for me, Argentina. Jason Aldean laughed until we cried. Uh, probably the greatest cry song of all time is A Journey. Who's crying now? We could probably sing that together, couldn't we? There's a lot of crying. We cry at movies. We cry at weddings. We cry when children are born. We cry when children leave home. We cry when children don't leave home. (laughs) We cry, but today let's make sense. We got just a few more minutes. Let's make sense of why this man so long ago cried about a wall. And his crying... By the way, I studied a little bit on tears, okay? You can't cry well without tears. And some of us are extra ugly when we cry, right? I've cried a few times. I'm like, babe, I, I got to leave the room because it's, it's ugly. Beyonce's got a song about you're ugly when you cry. I feel like she wrote that about me. Uh, there's a few kinds of tears. Do you know this? There's one kind of tear. It's called basal tears. And basal tears, uh, doctors tell us, are just the tears in your eyes. These are necessary tears. I've seen some commercials recently. Maybe you have about dry eyes. Anybody have dry eyes? You, you, don't, you're, you have a lack of production of basal tears. This is just necessary liquid that helps uh, keep uh, bad things out and keeps things functioning like they should. The next two are more um, understandable. The next one is reflex tears. Uh, this is a physical response to a, an irritant. Think uh, Chopping onions. Now, if you know Dana Carvey, chopping broccoli, that causes tears of laughter if you've ever seen him singing chopping broccoli. But think of chopping onions, or for several of us, several hundred of us, uh, we were out in the back here a couple of Wednesday nights ago with 20 fire pits. And when smoke gets in your eyes, I'm sensitive to that kind of stuff. I was crying. I was talking to some of you crying, not because I'm a good pastor and I care about what's happening in your life. I was just standing next to you in a fire. And I was crying. Some of you thought I just loved you a lot. And those tears were just bad. Smoke was getting in my eyes. And just like some of you, if you chop onions, I, was, I had reflex tears. And the third one is what separates us from animals. Now, okay, some of you go email me later because there's that elephant who cried when he was separated from his mom on YouTube that has 5 billion hits, okay? But animals, as I've studied for the most part, don't have emotional tears like we do. Now, Nehemiah wept and mourned. He fasted and he prayed. What's the idea behind fasting? Drew Mellon the other day posted on Twitter. I saw, who's, who's given up something for Lent? The idea of fasting is to say, I'm going to deny myself. Because there's that ugly part of us, the part that lacks self-control, that lacks impulse control. We just do what we want, when we want, and that sounds really good, doesn't it? For a teenager, that sounds good to be away from your parents' constraint. If you got a bad boss, oh my goodness. Man, I just want to, I want to, you know, and the scripture says that some of us follow the God of our stomach. 
the God of our appetite. And Deuteronomy tells us in chapter 7 and verse 8 that the purpose of fasting is that we would remember the Lord. And when you fast, you deny yourself something, particular food or drink, and you're saying, hey, I need God. Can I just say, we, the church today, we need leaders, listen to me, young people, who weep and pray and mourn and fast. Because we are a happy, fat church, and we need to learn about denial. And our man-made methods are falling woefully short of what God has for us. And more and more a religious people characterized by finger-pointing and malicious talk than letting mercy and compassion and justice roll about having a problem and being moved with God-given concern toward that problem. Give us leaders like Nehemiah. God, let me be a leader like Nehemiah. Unless this is too uh, down for you, this is too negative Nellie Debbie Downer for you, let me just say when we get to chapter 8, I'm going to preach what I hope will be one of my uh, favorite sermons because it's one of my favorite passages where Nehemiah says the joy of the Lord is my strength and he says go get food and go get drink and have a party. If you're going to lead, if you're going to tackle God-sized problems and overcome opposition and criticism where you lack resources, you will need to celebrate when God does a work. Let us be a party people. Let us celebrate knowing that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And Nehemiah cries, not basal tears, not reflexive tears in the physical way, but reflexive in an emotional way, but not not a passing concern sort of way, but something really deep, something abiding, something that's that's affecting him and it will affect others. Andy Stanley's a pastor in Atlanta. He has a book called Visioneering, and he says this about a God-given concern. He talks, by the way, when I, this morning, let me just say this. Uh, look at me here. Don't read it. Just look at me. You need a God-given problem. You need something that's worth your energies living for. But you can't call the church office and ask for a problem. Now, we have some by name. But you don't do that. Don't call the church tomorrow and say, hey, I need a God-sized problem. That's, that's not how it works. How does it work? I think Andy Stanley gives some insight. You will hear or see something that gets your attention. A thought related to the future will generate an emotion. Something will bother you about the way things are or the way things are headed. Unlike passing concerns, these will stick with you. You find yourself thinking about them in your free time. You may lose sleep over them. You won't be able to let them go because they won't let you go. Anything else to that? That's it. That's a good sentence to end on. Isn't that good? God wants to give you a concern. And here's what we're going to learn about Nehemiah. I'm going to tip the hand a little bit this morning for the weeks ahead. But God gives Nehemiah a concern, not a passing concern. That was a passing concern for other people. You know that other people looked at the wall and thought, "Mm, that's a shame. That wall's down. Where were the leaders of Jerusalem? Where were the people inside? They lacked the leadership skills. They lacked the resources, or likely they were just too discouraged by opposition and criticism. That knocks a lot of leaders down, doesn't it? You've heard the old saying probably, there's some people who make things happen, some people who watch things happen, and some people who wonder what happened. And Nehemiah was moved to action. It was more than a passing concern. Why? Because... It wouldn't let him go.
Wouldn't let him go. And what I love about Nehemiah is he's not a superhero. He's a regular guy. He's not a strange visitor from a, from a faraway planet with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal man. He's just a dude. And the miracles that we're going to see is not him parting the Red Sea or something like that. It's rebuilding a wall that they did in 52 days. The organizational ability, but it all flowed from weeping, mourning, praying, and fasting and having a God-given concern. I want to show you a passage from 2 Chronicles that just by a few years predates this era of Nehemiah. And it's honestly kind of spooky at first. It's a little spooky. 2 Chronicles 16.9. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You have done a foolish thing and from now on you will be at war. I won't give you the context of all of that. But there's a, this, this statement that the eyes of the Lord Range They rove throughout the whole earth. Now that's kind of spooky because if you come today and you're hiding that sin or you're covering something up, uh, you're, you're one way out of town and another way in town, you're one way publicly and another way privately, that's, that, there's a lot of fear in that verse, right? And, and if you're uh, on the edge of belief, uh, more of a skeptic, it's sort of that Santa Claus thing, right? He knows when you are naughty and nice, right? So it's a little spooky, but I believe in a God who's sovereign. I believe in a divine God. I believe in a God who's looking. I believe in a God who's looking for what? The scripture says what? What's he looking for? Say it out loud if you will. Go ahead. Talk back to me. Wholeheartedness. Someone's heart is completely his. There's a verse about another man. Look at it, this phrase that I think we have up. Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but what? But not wholeheartedly. He showed up. He checked the box. He completed his task. He probably at times, as I understand the story, this man's story, he, he wanted reform, but he didn't want to pay the cost. He was half hearted there's just something about wholeheartedness that honors God one pastor named Bill Hybels wrote a book called Holy Discontent he talks about blood boilers tear jerkers, grin makers things that make you happy, angry and sad and how God will use that if it's more than a passing passion or concern He'll break your heart for something, and then he'll use that. And here's the thing that separates Nehemiah. God often gives a concern before he gives a solution. And I'll be honest with you. Here's the way I am, I think, too often, and probably you in many ways. God, show me a solution, and I'll go do it. And that'd be easy, wouldn't it? No faith there. Show me a solution, I'll go right at it. What's the solution, God? I'll do it. I'll do it by 3 o'clock today. I'll do it before pregame in the national anthem. Before grown men start crying. I'll do that if you tell me the solution. But often God gives a concern before he gives a solution. Now, what does that put you? On your knees? Possibly weeping, praying, fasting, and mourning. Knowing that it's above you but it's below him. Wholeheartedness 
a holy discontent. I was running one time. There was three guys. We were out of state several, many, many years ago. And I joked, there was a, a Kentucky clergyman, a Mississippi minister, and an airlines pilot from Alabama. And we were just running along. And the minister, who's kind of, I would say, kind of famous, said, uh, after hearing this talk, holy discontent, he said, I, I, don't, I wonder what my holy discontent is. And I remember thinking, and I'm not a good conversationalist when I run because my cardio is kind of weak, but I remember thinking, dude, if you don't have a holy discontent, I don't. Because you're like, you're kind of a big time pastor. And here's a man just being real. What is my, I mean, I know what I do. I know where my burdens are. He's a pastor who teaches and who shepherds. David prayed, David said in Psalm 77 that a spiritual leader ought to lead with skillful hands and a shepherd's heart. That's, that's leadership. And I think this man is gifted extraordinarily, but he in vulnerability said, what is my holy discontent? What is the problem that God has put before me that moves me to action? I'll show a picture of a couple of friends. A lot of you know this Beautiful, handsome face. I don't know if he's here today, but he hardly ever misses. That's Walter Donald. Walter shared his story with our church before. He holds an office in our church, not because his past is squeaky clean. In fact, he's been locked up. He's done some really tough things, but he is a great example of God's mercy and grace in his life. And Walter shares his story, and as well as anybody I've seen, he loves on people. And loves on young people. And I think Walter is an example to me of someone with a holy discontent because he he's looks at these young kids to largely a fatherless generation. He says, man, I know the statistics. I know the probability. I know where their life is headed unless there's intervention. And there's this discontent, this rumbling in him. He's, already, he's thinking about the future. He's thinking about their future. He's thinking of interrupting that and letting God use him to love these kids. And there's this holy discontent. Here's a young lady. She's a lot prettier than Walter. Hallie Darfin, recent graduate of Mississippi College. I don't know if she's here today, but she is an example to us. Susan, my wife, had coffee with her a few weeks ago and heard her story. Mississippi College did a write-up recently on her. She's an owner, the founder of Dot Products, located on State Street toward the Capitol. And they sell school supplies. They make them, sell them, and portions of the proceeds go help educate children in places like Congo, Mexico, Tanzania, and now they're getting inroads uh, into Haiti. And there's this sense that we have to care for the poor and the lowly. There are people around the world that are oppressed. We got to go hard after them. Just like I was running with my pastor friend, I've asked myself that question many times over. What's my holy discontent? I know that I want to lead a church with godly men and women who give life to a community. I know I want to help equip people to do the works of service and ministry. And to give you a little secret, I don't have a crystal ball. I have no clairvoyancy or telepathic powers. But about six years ago when we were looking at planting a church and we looked at this area, I looked at this building. And I began to wonder what God had for this church called Woodland Hills and its future and this space and how it could be used for the kingdom. And we walked around and we prayed and had a sense that God might one day 
open a door. You're a part. If you invest in this church, if you have been investing, you're a part of this. Uh, look, here are some photos of our church. And there, I think, might be a photo or two of, of some space that has been renovated, that's been repaired, that's been rebuilt. Some, uh, some places around us, there's still a lot to go. But God has allowed us to share this space for a number of years and then one day own it outright where we will be able uh, to worship God here and to be a, a church that sins that lives sent where uh, the, the gospel could go forth and lives could be impacted. And there is repairing and restoring and rebuilding that has taken place and that will take place. One of the prayers, as some of you know, some of you have heard this story a few times, maybe too many times. But when we gathered to worship for the very first time, we took up an offering. We had no idea what we're doing and God blessed our socks off. And that home, that, that later that night I went home and I um, lay down I knelt down and I cried, thanking God that he had helped me overcome a fear, a fear that this church wouldn't get off the ground, a fear that I wouldn't be able to provide for my family. And God was nudging me and giving me a concern and saying that money that came in tonight, over $100,000, make sure this church gives it away in the next several months. I've got you, Robert. I've got your family. I've guided and I will provide, lead, and be bold. And by the way, the, we pray prayers of safety. The early church prayed prayers for boldness. Mm. You see, what's your problem? You can live towards small problems, petty problems. Uh, how can I be rich? How can I be successful? How can I be secure? How can I be comfortable? How can I be popular? How can I reduce the, fine, uh, the appearance of fine lines and wrinkles? You can live towards these very small problems, or you can live towards something big, something that will give life. I take great joy in knowing that 15 couples, this may give some single folks hope, but 15 couples have met at Fondren Church in these almost five years. They've met here and they've gotten married or they're about to get married. Last weekend, I stood in the back of the gym for a few minutes and looked at a whole bunch of couples who are married, who, like my own marriage, need life and truth spoken into them. And I thought, how beautiful it is to see these couples, especially men. I get it Friday night. I get that you came Friday night. That's date night, right? You, you check that off as date night. But you came back on Saturday morning and invested four hours to talk about your marriage. And I envision a church where walls that are breaking down are built back up. That people don't just find love here. They can keep love here. And God will do a work in us. A few weeks ago, I stood up on a ladder. We, a friend of mine calls it the generosity ladder. And I challenge you. I said, some people, most people who come don't give. Become a first-time giver. The next rung is to become a percentage giver. Take a percentage. The next rung on the ladder is to be a tither. Give 10%. Trust him. We've done it for years. Give 10% to God. God's math is different than the world. It seems wrong. God's ways seem wrong, but I'm telling you, it's the better way. And give, and even if you tithe, that's just the training wheels. Not, that's not the tour de force. That God is calling some of us to go over and beyond that. We're dabbling with this in our own lives of how can we be extravagant givers. We don't have extravagant wealth, but we can still in God's economy be extravagant givers. And if we grow, if our church moves forward with that, not trying to guilt or manipulate anybody. I'm just trying to give you a vision for the future. I've called us a sleeping giant. But if we move forward by the end of the year, I'm going to get these guys to run the numbers. But our church, before we're even five and a half years old, we will have given away a million dollars. 
Do you hear that? That's a God brag. That's a God brag. We will have given away a million dollars locally to invest in our community, to spread the gospel around the world. Who would have thought God would use us to let that generosity spill over the way he has? Do you have a problem? Are you investing your life in small, petty problems or something bigger and more noble, a God-sized problem? We've got a lot to learn from Nehemiah in the weeks ahead. But today I want to start with, here's a man that God used, and it started not with a passing concern, but with a broken heart. Let's pray.